It's among the most essential components for life on the planet, and while many of us take it for granted, for others it is a daily struggle to obtain. We're talking about clean water and what needs to be done to ensure that people around the globe have the access they need to sustain themselves. Hello, this is your host, Paul Teese, and on this episode of If When, we dive into the topic of clean drinking water with Eleanor Allen, Chief Executive Officer, Water for People, and Dr. Russell Ford, Jacob's Drinking Water Global Solutions Director. All right. Well, Eleanor and Russell, thank you both so very much for joining me today. Uh, you know, this is, uh, we've got Water Week upon us and the focus is, is providing clean drinking water to people. And, you know, obviously some constituencies, depending on where you live, can, you know, probably take that for granted more than others. So I think it's a very fascinating and an onerous challenge that the world is faced with, you know, making sure that everybody has access to this life essential service. So I want to start with you, Eleanor, uh, and just kind of to set the table for our listeners, you know, what are some of the greatest challenges we face now in ensuring people across the globe have access to safe, clean drinking water? Well, thanks, Paul, and thank you for the invitation to be here today, and hello to Russell. Interesting question. The greatest challenges we face, and I'll I'll answer that we face now as sort of an addendum to the answer. Well, the greatest challenges in one one greatest challenge we face is there's still over 2 billion people in the world that don't have access to reliable, safe water. Hmm. So that's a lot of people, and it's interesting because it's not impossible situation, right? We know how to do it. We know there's a solution. We all work in the water sector. We know there's the technical solution and it can be done. And the resources are available financially in the world. But what comes in the way is people. Hmm. And so really why we don't, why everyone doesn't have the ability to turn on a tap in their homes or not worry about if they're going to get sick or not have to walk to a stream is just failures in leadership and governance in policy and just getting those services to people. And there are a myriad of reasons, political will, um, having the right policies in place, getting the right or getting the resources to water versus somewhere else, because you know, countries do have limited resources. But all those things have to do with decision making, leadership and governance and guidance. Interestingly enough, being an engineer, you know, yeah. we could engineer all we want and we could solve these challenges. If just people wouldn't get in the way. Yeah. For sure. So as a follow up to that, you know, what what needs to be done to future proof the accessibility and safety of water, you know, especially in the near future? Yeah, well, that comes to the now part and why, you know, what needs to be done and how do we actually solve this crisis, the global Mm -hmm. water crisis? Well, now is an interesting time because more people are aware of the issues with not having access to water because of COVID. Mm -hmm. So uh, I want to take the opportunity and we are taking the opportunity to to leverage that ability to get some news that, um, yeah, people can't wash their hands because they don't have water. Oh, and, and you know what? If they don't have water, their health is impacted. Mm. Kids don't go to school. Your ability to have a uh, make a good living because you're out taking care of sick people or looking for water mm-hmm. instead of working. So let's get people water and kind of have the basis of the foundation of sustainable development solved, and then we can future-proof this. So things that we're working on at Water for People is Building that political will, so making sure politicians and leaders, uh, ministers of finance, for example, are mm-hmm. understanding what it takes to get enough investment in their countries, whether through loans or grants or 
people paying their rates to get people water and why that's important. So education, advocacy, and influencing those national level policies towards the sustainable development goals is part of the future proofing. And But to do that, there must be a plan, right? There has to be a master plan and investment plan and how you're going to spend the money and how we're going to make sure it goes to making sure the water isn't just infrastructure, but the sustainability is built in that we have the service providers and service authorities. So that's a lot of what what we're working on water for people. And what I personally work on is getting that knowledge and understanding to the people who can make those decisions and change the future of their countries in this case, having those right policies in place. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one country at a time, it depends a lot who's the president is and if water is part of their personal national agenda mm-hmm. and then putting all the pieces in place to make it happen. Mm, interesting. So, so obviously the will needs to be there, but also, you know, the technology uh, needs to be there as well. Mm-hmm. You know, so Russell, to bring you in on this, you know, what are some of the innovative technologies that Jacobs is deploying to ensure drinking water is clean and accessible? Thanks, Paul. And hello, Eleanor. I would say, you know, it's funny about technology. What's old is new again. And what's new is old again in terms of technology. We've been using, we've been treating water pretty much the same way pretty much since the, you know, 50s, 60s. We figured out, we figured out filtration. Mm-hmm. You know, we figured out disinfection. You know, we've added new tools for UV disinfection for things like Jardia and Cryptosporidium. Um, you know, we've done that. So that's from an innovative standpoint. That's not really innovation, but the technology has changed, like membranes. We're going, you know, instead of using polymeric membranes, we're doing a lot of work with ceramic membranes. They last longer, provide longer, better, you know, operational costs. They remove better. You can put more pretreatment in front of them. But I think one of the more innovative things, and it goes to Eleanor's point regarding um, the people without water is, you know, we're doing a lot of water reuse and we're integrating technologies that by themselves didn't have to deal with reuse. But we're looking at the biological side mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, filtration and, you know, ozone, we're looking at the, uh, you know, phys chem side in terms of membrane removal. And we're looking at taking water that's been used once somewhere else and trying to bring it to people who need water. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that's one of the areas where we truly are uh, excelling in, you know, looking at different solutions. There are solutions for the coast, mm-hmm. you know, when you're, where you, you can discharge your concentrate to the uh, ocean. And the solutions inland and, you know, where you can use a process to use wastewater and then make it potable. And there's a big, you know, big move afoot to make it potable. And we're not just, you know, it's in all parts of the world. We're starting to see people looking at how can we reuse the water instead of just sending it to the ocean, back to the ocean, making more use of it. So I'd say that's really kind of where we are on the innovation. You know, mm-hmm. to me, those are the, that's really where we focus on innovation. Hmm, that's interesting. And it, it kind of follows suit with a, a lot of the efforts that we see in sustainability and circular economy and, and that whole idea of, you know, not just a one and done, but finding ways to reuse the water, right? You know, because it's, it is a limited resource uh, and, you know, especially clean water. So now I've heard the term digital water, which is, I think, really fascinating. So can you describe what that is? So digital water, you know, it's, it's a, it's an interesting uh, way. The water industry takes lots of data, lots and lots of data, collect mm-hmm. data on used to be when back when I started, we collected on circular charts. Um, now it's all on the computers and SCADA systems and all this data just sits around and nobody really did much with it. But now we're starting to look at that data 
mm-hmm. and figuring out ways to optimize the facilities, optimize energy consumption, um, produce a better product for less money for mm-hmm. our customers. You know, um, you know, the value of water, uh, it's important. You know, people still want water and there's a cost to it, but if we can reduce the cost, make it more sustainable. We're looking at that. Um, so that's part of the digital is how do we take all this information we have in this world and with the new tools and technology available and make the utilities more efficient and ability to treat the water and deliver the water to the customers. Hmm. Well, and I imagine that if we can make water even more uh, financially um, cost beneficial for providers, then that, that feeds into that will, that political will that Eleanor was talking about earlier. You know, it makes it easier for finance ministers to get behind it. I mean, it's you know, kind of the reality you know, that you're faced with. But So, Eleanor, let me ask you, um, let's talk about the environment and environmental impacts for a moment, um, you know, because obviously uh, everybody's very keyed in on you know, the things that are going on in the environment and how it is impacting us, you know, such as climate change, carbon emissions and whatnot. What kind of what kind of impact do they have on the globe's clean drinking water supply? Quite a bit of impact, actually. I mean, first, I want to mention that most of the countries we work in, low and middle income countries, are often around the middle of the, the world, the equator. Mm-hmm. So highly susceptible to extreme weather events. So we have flooding, we have droughts, we have uh, melting glaciers. So pretty much in all our nine countries, we have some sort of climate response that we're dealing with and we'll continue to deal with. Um, that means we need to find redundant water sources. Water sources are drying up. Eventually, I think it will mean population migration, although it's hard to imagine that the populations we work with, you know, will have the means to migrate and where would they go? So that's, you know, a question for the future. Mm-hmm. It is building more resiliency into the water system so we don't lose them to flood droughts, hurricanes. We lost $6 million worth of infrastructure for the two hurricanes that hit mm-hmm. Honduras last November, one after the other. And so those things are just devastating in, in the countries where we work. So looking on the positive side, what are we doing in our programs to, to adapt to this? Well, we are doing much better on building water resources, uh, management plans. Mm-hmm. We have all, we use, you know, whatever water resources are available. So whether it's groundwater, surface water, whatever's there. So just building resiliency into when we do the master planning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have, we do our best to provide sufficient water sources for future population growth is one. Um, rainwater catchment, um, you know, conservation to the extent possible. We don't have that much reuse, as Russell mentioned, because we are non-sewered areas. So generally... Uh, there isn't much gray water that gets recycled, but sometimes in household situations, we do have some reuse mm-hmm. or the gray water gets put into uh, family gardens. And lastly, on carbon, interesting, we've talked a lot about that recently. There are definitely programs about measuring the carbon offsets, uh, averting using firewood for boiling water, for non-potable water. Mm-hmm. And when you put in a drinking water system that has uh, safe water, you have that offset. So that's something that we're looking at. I mean, not everyone boils their water, right? Because they don't have the firewood, they'll just drink poor quality water. Uh, but that is something that's coming more and more into our world where we work to avoid that those carbon emissions. Mm-hmm. And also just reuse of biosolids from uh, fecal sludge management, whether through compost or um, using sludge briquettes instead of charcoal is another uh, way, you know, small carbon mitigation and, and reducing deforestation. So there are lots of things we're looking at in that area. And then, of course, reducing our own carbon footprint as a business. 
but we really want to look at more of the holistic areas and where we work. And then if there are benefits to um, carbon credits, that would go directly to the districts where we work as an income in perpetuity over time. It wouldn't go to water for people, but it would be that carbon offset would be to that community, which would be really interesting as we look at the ability to sustain enough income through rates to continue to upgrade and manage their systems. Mm. So different facets of climate come into our world. Mm. Now, Eleanor had, had mentioned, you mentioned migratory patterns and, um, you know, I, I'd seen, you know, some, some bodies like the UN and, and others that are, that study like population growth, you know, they're, they're predicting that really the, the globe's population is going to be moving more and more in mass to like, large cities, super cities, you know, I think is what they call them. And so, you know, so you're, you know, we've got the population is, is, is obviously pretty big and people will be moving more and more to cities and conglomerating there. And so, you know, I, I assume that gives rise to some interesting challenges in terms of contaminants and, you know, kind of offsetting those things. And so Russell, you know, what are some advances in contaminant detection that are being deployed in support of clean water? So, yeah, there's, there's a few things, but I wanted to just, you know, answer, you know, talk a little bit about what you mentioned about the big cities. Mm-hmm. I would say that prior to the year of 2020 of COVID, mm-hmm. um, that was definitely the case. And what a lot of water utilities are seeing right now is a move away from the cities mm-hmm. because people realized they were trapped for a year in their home or their apartments and mm-hmm. without without a lot of access to people mm-hmm. and they're moving away. So the water utilities and a lot of the in a lot of the world, you know, they are looking at trying to adjust their water supply and demand to get people to what where the water is. And so that does impact the contaminants that we're seeing mm-hmm. and how we treat for the contaminants. I mean the you know I think the best advances we have in contaminant detection for mm-hmm. some of the stuff where we're using a lot of spectral analysis, you know, looking at devices that can measure without reagents. Uh, so computer-based devices. Traditionally, we would have to measure stuff. Uh, you'd have to react and reagent, discharge the reagent down the sewer or down the street. Mm-hmm. You know, now we have devices that can do that without that. We're making use of surrogate parameters, you know, with these spectral devices to try to mimic what's happening to predict what contaminant is in the water. Mm-hmm. Um, so things like, um, algal toxins, where, you know, where it's kind of, uh, something that forms in the water when algae, harmful algal blooms happen. Mm-hmm. We are looking at using this technology to predict when those blooms might happen so we can then get ahead of the treatment and have the treatment plant be prepared for that bloom before it happens. So you don't have a situation where you have to shut down the entire water system because you weren't prepared for the bloom mm-hmm. or the change in water quality and with climate, the way the climate's changing. Mm-hmm. Um, predictive, the source water monitoring is really coming into play for us to look at how that impacts treatment and ultimately finish water quality. Now, you had mentioned water utilities, and I, I'm assuming that, you know, Jacob's partnership with the water utilities is really important in, in these efforts. Can you talk a little bit about how Jacob's is partnering with water utilities to provide safe and clean water and sanitation? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So we're, we, we pride ourselves on being a solution provider, mm-hmm. working, working with the utilities to provide the solution to what they're needed. So it's not like we're looking to put a technology in or, you know, it's what do you need? So right now, depending where you are in the world, there's different regulatory drivers 
Mm-hmm. There's aging infrastructure issues. Um, we like to bring, we're really trying to work with utilities to bring the whole thing together, the whole one water solution. Mm-hmm. Trying to look at everything, not just the treatment plant, not just the wastewater, but the source water, the distribution, and trying to get them to build that integrated approach to how they solve their water needs. I think Eleanor mentioned it earlier about people, you know, policy. Mm-hmm. You know, that's one of the challenges we have even within 40 utilities around the world is, you know, getting everybody to play nice in the sandbox, mm-hmm. you know, with the neighboring water utility so that they can see the same solution might be better on a larger scale than mm-hmm. a smaller scale. So that's what we kind of do. You know, we, we provide solutions. We try to provide low cost, you know, sustainable solutions that are life cycle based. So we might look at convincing somebody to put in a little higher capital cost project that's going to be more sustainable for 30, 40 years versus 20 years. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you need to have the, the right mindset to understand that you may pay more now, but long term, you know, the, the people who are going to use this facility are going to benefit, you know, in terms of your constituents and people who get the water will not pay that much more for it. So that's how we try to work with the utilities is, you know, we can bring a lot of solutions to the table. We try to bring it, you know, but it's trying to get everybody to understand, you know, we do a lot of cost benefit analysis. And I think now we're adding a lot of cost benefit with a lot of socioeconomic issues and, you know, equity mm-hmm. issues to that too and societal issues. So it's like, you know, sometimes, you know, I, you know, one water utility I worked with many years ago, you know, there, you know, we worked about how do you, the water has to be the same no matter where you live in the service area. Mm-hmm. So you have to bring the same solution and it's, you know, there's equity and it wasn't as big, you know, now it's a bigger deal in terms of people really, really understanding the significance of this equity. Mm-hmm. So we're working with them to provide good equitable solutions to all of their constituents, not just the ones who can pay more money, mm-hmm. um, but the ones who all need safe, safe drinking water to sustain life. Eleanor, you know, uh, Russell touched on this, you know, that, that need for collaboration and getting the players to all, you know, get along and, and kind of be able to see the vision of responding to the greater good and, you know, aligning their efforts such. Then you mix in, you know, this, this COVID-19 pandemic thing that people are talking about, you know. So what are some of the success stories of collaboration across various water industry players uh, that you're seeing in responding to the pressures caused by uh, COVID-19? Well, that's a great question, Paul. Last uh, a year ago, after we found our way, like from swimming underwater to figure out, okay, now what do we actually do now that the world's turned upside down? Mm-hmm. What was um, now I would call a silver lining. I didn't really realize it was happening at the time, but in our COVID response, we've grown a lot closer to the global health sector. Mm-hmm. And how this uh, manifested itself was we got a lot of requests from our district governments for help with immediate response. So we developed a program about readiness, response, and then resiliency. So mm-hmm. how can we just help like get out PPE, spread the word on um, using soap and sanitizer, get mass distributed. So really basic stuff. Just mm-hmm. we had it through our district uh, service wash offices. We, you know, basically the rural utilities. We had a network that that really connected everyone to the last mile. So that became this network of communication mm-hmm. that hadn't been used in such a, you know like an emergency response before. Super effective. And then we realized that this isn't just a one time thing, right? This is about learning from COVID to get ready for the next epidemic pandemic because there will be one. So the first responders are the 
people who are at the water points, like either the community service points or the wash offices, and then really learning you know, what worked and what didn't work when people couldn't, if they were sick, they didn't have the revenue to pay the rates. So how did communities deal with that? And each community is a different story about, um, you know, deferring rates or having different ways to keep the system running. So they still needed revenue coming in, but they were also able to adapt to their communities. And then on the bigger picture, you know, we've traditionally worked at the national levels with Ministry of Infrastructure, Ministry of Water, Ministry of Environment, Ministry of Finance. But now, and then health was always about getting service to health clinics, but not working with the ministry. It was just about clinics and schools. And, you know, same for Ministry of Education. But now moving forward, it'll be a lot more about not just hygiene, but health and hygiene. And how do we have a much more encompassing approach to global health? And this has led into our um, our 10-year vision, Destination 2030, which Jacobs has been part of as one of our supporters looking towards the end of the SDG phase. What does this look like for the world? Mm-hmm. And for on the health side, it's really about measuring our success through better water and sanitation service delivery, not just about access and sustainable access, but about the more nebulous uh, metrics like improvements of health in health mm-hmm. and improvements in ability to stay in school. And those are where we haven't, you know, we don't directly measure that because we're not directly responsible. It's more contribution, but we're trying to figure out how we can, we can show how communities improve because we know they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just about how do we show that that economic and health impact of improved water services can improve entire communities. So that's a shift we're making as well. Okay. And then in terms of shift, you know, how is the water industry leveraging things such as circular economic thinking to increase water reuse and sustainability? Well, again, for us, it's more on the fecal sludge reuse because we do a lot with the the non-sewered systems. And that is a huge opportunity, by the way, because most of the world doesn't have sewers. For Mm -hmm. those of us, including myself, who you know, grew up doing sewer systems. It's pretty, pretty nice to have a sewer, but most of the world don't and probably won't ever. Mm-hmm. So really thinking about how do we get services to non-sewered areas, a lot more complicated. And then on in water reuse, I would say along with that, since we don't do a lot of water reuse, it's about water conservation, which we do a lot of, especially mm-hmm. um, like India has a whole program right now on getting the national government's pushing, getting household connections for water. Mm-hmm. But they don't have enough water. So it's also about uh, raising awareness on, on conserving water and reusing water and becoming water aware, mm-hmm. which is what we'd like the whole world to do because you know, I grew up in Michigan taking water for granted because I lived down the street from a lake and from the water treatment plant. But that's not, that's a nice little bubble, but it's not most of the world. Mm-hmm. So water awareness, conservation, and then reusing gray water in our case, and then also reusing biosolids and then really leveraging that across our the countries where we work, not just the rural areas, but the, uh, we do a lot of work now in the peri-urban slums, which don't have great services. Mm-hmm. Those will continue to grow in the circular economy thinking will as well. Mm. And then, Russell, finally, uh, where do you see the drinking water sector headed in the next decade? You know, it goes back, you know, I'll jump on the circular economy thing in terms of this is more sustainable looking mm-hmm. at, so we're looking at a lot of alternative energy renewable energy sources to help power the water utilities mm-hmm. because water utilities use a lot of power. You know, and usually it's, you know, unless you were fortunate enough to have a lake on a hill where you could flow by gravity to everybody else, you're usually pumping a lot of water around. You know, we have to add chemicals to um, make, you know, remove the contaminants from the water. And then we provide, you know, we form this residual process that we had to dispose of. So looking at renewable 
you know, renewables that can help power these facilities is going to really go a long way mm-hmm. to do that. I think the other part in the future, the, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the digital, you talk about the digital um, market mm-hmm. is the ability to utilize the data to be more predictive, more machine learning, more artificial intelligence, more optimization. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's a shortage, you know, not so much a shortage, but there's a deficit of people going into the wood industry in terms of trained operations personnel on all sides of the water industry. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that institutional knowledge that's going away if people retire. Um, so we're doing a lot of machine learning, looking at the data, using the spectral analysis to optimize coagulation and show a utility they can use 10 to 20% less or make a predictive change because the water quality changed. And although you did it this way for 20 years, maybe if you do it this way, you could still get the same result and actually spend less energy or money doing it. So I see a, I see a real strong focus going down more sustainable, more machine, more digital path, more more artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're doing a lot of predictive modeling inside facilities. You know, in terms of just doing predictions, mm-hmm. which is critical. You know, and I think that's that's kind of where the industry is going. I and mean, obviously, we still need to um, address the regs. And I think you know, I would said it best. We still need to help address the world water problem, mm-hmm. which is shortage of water. People who live in countries where there's abundance of water take it for granted. And, if, you know, and all you need to do is see what happens when you lose power or you, when you, you know, when you go somewhere, you travel somewhere and the country doesn't have water. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as an industry, I think we're going to look, looking at, as it goes back to the one water approach of it's all connected and we just can't ignore, like I can't ignore wastewater. I can't ignore stormwater. I can't ignore water resources and reservoirs. I need to, it's all connected. Mm-hmm. It's, only, it's only one, and there's only one drop of water. You know, it's the same water we've had for millions of years. It didn't go anywhere. So we need to just figure out how to use it more efficiently. So that's where we're going. Fascinating. And it's interesting how it all is coming together. Um, you know, the, the power, the power needs and the environmental okay. needs. And then, you know, ultimately it's that political will to make sure that people have access to clean drinking water. If we start there. Then we can make it happen. You know, we have the, the wherewithal. We just need to do it. Eleanor and Russell, I really want to thank you both so very much for joining me today. It's been a fascinating conversation. There's a lot of great work being done in the water industry. And uh, so I really appreciate your time and insights and really look forward to seeing uh, all the great work that you're doing in the years ahead. Thank you, Paul. And thank thanks, you. Russell. Thank you, Eleanor. Thank you, Paul.